Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On today's show, we focus on why we have her back. You have heard it recently as a powerful challenge to newsrooms in the wake of Senator Kamala Harris being selected as the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic ticket. Yet there is more. Today we focus on women's political leadership, starting with repealing the Helms Amendment and why that is a critical issue and why women's leadership has been central to forging political representation, equality and fighting for reproductive health, rights, and justice domestically and abroad. For that part of our show, we are thrilled to be joined by two path-breaking members of Congress, Representative Jan Schakowsky and Representative Barbara Lee. Representative Jan Schakowsky represents Illinois' 9th Congressional District, which includes Chicago's North Side. She is the House Senior Chief Deputy Whip, chair of the Energy and Commerce Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee and chair of the Congressional Pro-Choice Caucus Providers and Clinics Task Force. Representative Barbara Lee represents California's 13th District, which serves Oakland and the East Bay. She is the highest ranking Black woman in Congress. She is also a senior member of the Appropriations Committee. She serves as co-chair of the Majority Leaders Task Force on Poverty and Opportunity. She co-chairs the Pro-Choice Caucus and is the former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and Congressional Progressive Caucus. Their leadership helps to put in context why the campaign hashtag we have her back is so important and why women's leadership matters. For the first half of our show, we could not have a better guest than Tina Chen, the president and CEO of Time's Up Now, to join us. She is the former assistant to President Barack Obama and served as the chief of staff to First Lady Michelle Obama. She was also the executive director of the White House Council on Women and Girls. Listeners, you are in for a real treat. Tina, thank you so very much for being on the show with us. These are critical times. Tell our listeners about the We Have Her Back campaign and what inspired it. Well, thank you for having us and thank you for addressing We Have Her Back in this pretty timely moment. Uh, You know, We Have Her Back, the genesis of it was, you know, over the course of the last several weeks, um, I and some of my colleagues in the women's movement, you know, who've been around for a while, we have been talking and feeling like, you know, we have seen this movie before, that we knew what was coming, going to happen when a woman VP nominee was selected by Vice President Biden, uh, because we've lived it before and we were living it in the moment on the kind of racist and misogynistic discussion and conversation around women leaders that has been our norm in our political discourse going back for years. And we finally just decided time's up. You know, we are not going to sit back quietly this time while these kinds of commentary and, 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 and sexist and racist comments get leveled at, get against women leaders uh, in our country. And so that's how we have our back came together. Um, We launched, you know, um, on the Friday before 
the VP nominee was selected. So we sent out a memo to news directors and editorial boards, you know, that Friday saying, look, you know, we are watching you. We have her back. You know, be careful about how you report it. Don't use gendered norms and stereotypes, you know, when you're talking about women leaders. And lo and behold, that 24 hours later, after our memo went out, uh, the New York Times that Saturday morning ran a headline that talked about wrist corsages. In the you can't make it up. You, you just simply make can't up. make you can't make it up. Can't make it up. Well, it gets better. So New York Times ran wrist corsages that morning. The LA Times ran an article, another article written by another woman reporter that compared the VP nominee process to The Bachelor and referred to the White House as the ultimate fantasy suite. Like you, really? it's like Ken and Barbie, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Barbie dream house. Exactly. Exactly. And, and here's the problem. Here's the problem that, you know, it is not only damaging to Senator Harris and demeaning, um, but it keeps us from imagining her as the vice president of the United States, because we, it plays into all of the gendered norms we all were, grew up with, right. Of not seeing women's leadership as strong enough, right, or as bold enough, you know, we only imagine white men in those positions because that's what we've been acculturated to do. And here's the insidious nature of it. It's not just about this political um, discourse that we're having. It's focused because we're so paying so much attention on this really critical, important election. But as these terms get thrown around, around women leaders in the political sphere, it infects how we think about women leaders elsewhere. It's the reason why, for example, right now there are no black women as CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. None. Repeat that. Exactly. Repeat that, please, just so our listeners, that really settles in. It is 2020. And although in the past we've had one or two, you know, amazing black women, you know, CEOs like Ursula Burns, who used to be at Xerox, she has since retired. And so right now in 2020, there are zero Black women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. That's a painful reality. It is. And it's because of this, how we talk about women leaders. And that's why, you know, how we talk about, whether it's Kamala Harris, whether it's Speaker Pelosi, who was called, mm-hmm. you know, a bitch, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, right. and her, the GOP leader will not call out that congressional candidate who did that. Right. Right. Um, you know, it's what happened to Congresswoman Cortez. You know, I only call her AOC. Yes, time, yes, right? yes. But you know, it's what happened to her. You know, by Representative Yoho. You know, this is the belittling and demeaning of women's leaders, women leaders, and women's leadership. And when that happens, it it doesn't just stay confined to women in an elected position. You know, it it trickles all the way down to how we think about women in our own lives, how businesses think about women in leadership positions, you know, not just CEO, but can this woman restaurant server become the manager of my restaurant? Right? Absolutely. Can it, it goes all the way down to the right. grassroots can, level. Can, can she handle the cashier's exactly. job? <laughs> you know, can she be trusted to count? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, and when Donald Trump calls, you know, Kamala Harris a phony. So that the, the the what's 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 hard about this is not every one of these gendered statements shows up as a sexist comment like bitch, right? Sometimes right. it is using the word like phony, which mm-hmm. you know, 
I will tell you, Donald Trump's pretty smart with the nicknames that he uses. Um, and yes, shrewd funny, in that category, right? Totally shrewd, <laughs> right? Yeah, would that he were smarter in other categories, right? Now, but he's not. <laughs> Wish only- over 160,000 Americans weren't dead now from the pandemic. Exactly. So this is his only, you know, skill perhaps. And and um, and so when he uses the word phony, it doesn't sound gendered, except that you and I know it plays into imposter syndrome. It plays into all of the things about why is she phony? It's because women don't belong in this position. She's a phony because women aren't supposed to be running for vice president of the United States. Um, and it plays into all of that, but in a very subtle you know, way that, you know, sends a code to our brains and we don't even recognize it's happening. So right, it is so deeply coded, isn't it? And one of the things that was powerful about the memo that you and such incredible, impactful leaders um, sent Fatima Ghost Graves from the National Women's Law Center. We've got folks from NARAL, Valerie Jarrett and, and so forth. Um, is that you pointed out that we've seen these kinds of stereotypes before uh, and that you mentioned we've learned a lot since the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent uh, protests of racial equality or for racial equality that happened in the wake of his death. And that's true, right? So where newsrooms kind of rallied themselves about race, but not in the same way about sex or sexism at all. And it's very interesting in the backdrop of this, because what one is also seeing are stories that are so deeply derogatory. In fact, even unhinged kind of birtherism part two critiques about natural born citizenship. Could you speak a little bit to that? Because that also has been shocking. Haven't we been here before? Oh, we have with my old boss, right? You know, we have Definitely. been, And it is all that deeply coded nature of being other, right? Mm-hmm. Just identifying these candidates and these leaders as something other and trying to instill fear of the other. When in fact, the reality of our country is, you know, I'm the daughter of immigrants. So many of us are, all of us are, unless you're Native American. And that That's is right. the strength. That's the strength of this country. It's not something to be feared, right? It's our our technology, our innovation. Think of all the leaders and the inventors who are immigrants themselves or the sons or daughters of immigrants. The talent nearly half in yes. our country. Yes. You know, and, and the talent we would lose, right? And you know, so yeah, so here's the thing, you know, and I, I'm gonna repeat something that actually I learned from Sherilyn Eiffel about this is a while back. This was about like two years ago as things were happening. And, you know, she told a group of us who were meeting to celebrate diversity. Right. And she said to us, she looked, she said, look, you know, don't think folks don't know that we are headed into, you know, where the minorities are going to be the majority. Don't think that people don't know that that is happening. And don't be fooled that we haven't lived through minority rule before. You know, white minority rule has existed on this planet in the past. And how did they do it in South Africa? You know, they gerrymandered the districts to just screw up, you know, what happened um, on voting. They controlled the courts and they suppressed the vote. So think about the last four years and what Mitch McConnell has been doing in the Congress, what's happened to suppression of the vote, what's happened to control of the courts what's happened to how our ger- districts are being gerrymandered or what they're doing to the census right now. You know, they're going to, Oh, it's you know, a painful cut, reality to see this. I mean, people waiting hours in line to vote. 
Right. And here's the other thing they're doing. They're cutting off the census two months early. This was an announcement that got buried. This is another one of those Friday announcements. They they are cutting off the census two months early to actually, that's going to lower the count, which is going to affect how districts are divided, right? And how representation in Congress looks. And this is all about locking in minority rule as people of color become the majority in this country. I think I think that's what's going on. It's really hidden and very nefarious, but you know, I, I I actually think that's that that is some of what we're seeing happen in this in this broader context. And which is why, you know, I just that's sort of my personal view, <laughs> just mm-hmm. to be clear. But 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 you know, but to be clear on that though, these are the things that are front and center if one only looks. I mean, it's not as if this is a secret. Right. We see this across the country. You saw that in the Wisconsin election, pushing people out to vote in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Uh, we see that in the gerrymandering of districts all across the country. We see that in the strategic way in which Senator Mitch McConnell uh, created a pathway for President Trump to uh, nominate and then get confirmed more federal judges than any other president, save George Washington. We see that in just the hours and hours it takes in districts that are predominantly people of color for them to be able to vote Uh, in the shuttering of not hundreds, but thousands of polling centers, places where people of color would vote. This is right in front of this. This is not some hidden puzzle where you've got to figure out the riddle. So I'm really happy that you elevated that. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, I think it's important to, for people to register and to vote, right? We have got yes. what, 83 days left. Yes. I think that, you know, what people need to do and, and, and make sure, you know, deadlines are going to start coming up really fast too, right? So make mm-hmm. sure if anybody's listening right now, um, another organization that I work with, with my old boss, Mrs. Obama, is When We All Vote, which is yes. a nonpartisan effort to make sure, regardless of your political affiliation, that everyone is registered, everyone knows how to vote, and everybody gets out and vote, because that's the way our democracy works. So you can go to whenweallvote.org. You can find out you know, how to get registered, what the deadline is in your jurisdiction, then what's the deadline for submitting you know, a, a vote-by-mail ballot, if that's what you want to do or finding out how to early vote or how to find out how to vote on election day. You know, we need everybody to be informed because there will be roadblocks that are put up like polling places moving or make sure you get your mailing ballot in early so it doesn't get caught in a last minute rush and doesn't get to the elect, you know, election judges on time. You know, be a smart voter this year and make sure that your vote is counted. And when we all vote, we've got the resources there for you to learn how to do that. And then one, you know, one more thing, if you, if you don't mind, I just want people yeah, to, no, please. you know, you know, go, go to time's up now, you know, you know, you can text now to three zero six four four to hear more about what we're doing at time's up. And you can, if you hear something that you want to call out hashtag, we have her back. Right. I think this I is love that. importantly, this isn't about cancel culture, right? We're not trying to quiet people. We're just trying to get people to think about the language they're using when they speak. That's what what we need people to do. That is so critically important. And before I let you go, can you tell our listeners about what the kind of impacts that can be made when we have women take charge and in leadership? What does that mean? uh, What's represented in a vice presidential candidate pick uh, of Senator Kamala Harris or at any other level where women are in charge? 
Well, first of all, you get diversity of thought and leadership into play. You get, you know, the life experience that someone like a Kamala Harris brings to the White House. Um, You get an approach to problems and to issues um, that is sometimes broader and more inclusive. Um, You know, I find it interesting that we've all been comparing how countries led by women like New Zealand and Germany are faring during the pandemic, how cities that are led by women like my own city of Chicago, you know, and Atlanta are fearing during during this pandemic moment, um, you know, that women's leadership, it, you know, matters and is different. And here's the other thing, you know, and what's so exciting about Senator Harris's candidacy is, and we saw this, you know, with President Obama's, you know, uh, uh, candidacy and tenure, is that, you know, then our young people see themselves in the White House. There's that wonderful picture that's so famous of the little boy who asked in the first, this was in the first couple months we were in office, you know, you know, that picture of President Obama's leaning down for the little boy to touch his hair, which is sometimes forgotten is the little, that was prompted by a question that that little boy asked that said, is your hair like mine? That's what prompted President Obama to lean down. Is your hair like mine? And President Obama said, it is. Would you like to feel it? And it's that moment of recognizing they're seeing someone who is like them, who has hair like them, who has a history like them, who looks like them in a positions of power that empowers our young people. Um, and well, that's so critical. It is so critical. And, you know, and it makes me think about the campaign to strip that away from all Americans. You know, and I think about how we frame who our heroes are in our society. Uh, so rarely are they ever framed as people of color. And yet you look at the Sojourner Truths, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Ida B. Well, you know, just so many people who were central to the promise of what a democracy holds, you know, what equality truly means, this kind of defining of, yes, these are heroes for us all, right? They, these are people who represent everybody and one need not kind of just tip to George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as being the people who are the standard bearers for what it means to be a true American. But yes, in that moment, and in so many other moments that could come forward is transitioning that thinking that yes, people of color are too invested in this democracy and the forebears for upholding and uplifting this democracy. Well, and, you know, I, I, we're, we're all continuing to be thinking about Representative John Lewis, right? In this moment, yes. you know, these are how, how thrilled he would have been yesterday, you know, um, oh my. Uh, to, see, to see that team walk out. And, you know, how, as President Obama said to uh, Congressman Lewis, you know, on the day of President Obama's inauguration, you know, it was because of him. Right. That's 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 the that's the autograph that President Obama gave to Congressman Lewis when the congressman asked for an autograph on his inauguration day bulletin. Right. And, um, you know, that 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 is, you know, we what we who are here now need to understand. And this is what I feel about the vote. Look, we all have the vote from a lot of sacrifice by a lot of folks. And, you know, we were about to celebrate the centennial of the 19th Amendment, you know, in a, in, in a couple weeks. Um, 
and, you know, the suffragists who literally starved themselves, right, and sacrificed their bodies and their health and well-being, in addition to, you know, every, every all the, all the, all the standing in front of the White House, House that they did, and being force-fed, you know, that led to the 19th Amendment, and then the struggle for Black women and women of color, you know, and other people of color, you know, over the next 40 years that culminated in the Civil Rights Act, and, you know, everything that, you know, happened, you know, Dorothy Height, you know, is somebody I always remember in this moment, too, whom, you know, for folks to know, she, you know, she, you know, she created, you know, um, the Black Women's Roundtable, and, and, and so many others, she's, she's the one woman up on the platform, was Dorothy Height in that civil, you know, Lincoln Memorial moment. Um, and she passed away a few years ago, but she was there still in the White House when we got there to Washington, D.C. Um, so I'm so grateful we were able to have her in the White House several times. Um, and we had her in the office several times, not to just kind of like celebrate her, but for real policy issues. At that age, that woman was still pushing me on policy. And I love it. She, you know, she was an icon to me and I, oh, she was so generous to me personally. I mean, she became a friend and a mentor as I navigated my way around Washington when I first got there in 2009. And, uh, and in these moments you think about her, right. And her leadership, yes. her sacrifice, and she's a name that not everybody knows. Right. And I'm we glad need to you lift, lifted her up. We need to lift those women up. Absolutely. Well, Tina, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. And Last question, last quick question is what's the next step for women to take um, in this uh, in, in 2020 and beyond? And you've mentioned voting as being the critical piece. Is that it? Well, it's voting. And so that is the near term 83 days voting. And then, you know, when we come out of that in November, you know, we do have a country to rebuild. You know, both because of the pandemic crisis, the economic crisis, the racial justice reckoning. Um, and so it's going to be really important for as women, you know, and what we're focused on at Time's Up as to keep focus on the issues of safe, fair and dignified work in the workplace. You know, with our economy basically stripped down to the bare bones, you know, we're going to rebuild it. And it's an opportunity to rebuild it on principles of equity. So let's make sure we're rebuilding with equal pay on the table. We're rebuilding it with paid leave for everyone on the table. You know, re rebuilding it in a way that invests in our workers and gives them every opportunity to thrive in their workplaces and become CEOs, you know, whether you're a woman, a man, a person of color, a disabled person, LGBTQIA, you know, that's the opportunity that it's not going to happen by itself. So no, a well, lot of work. I mean, my, my caution also having lived that movie before in 2009, after a lot of hard work, you know, through the electoral season, people need to stay at it come January, um, where, you know, we're going to have to rebuild our, our, our country and people need to be active in making sure, you know, that that happens and that it right. happens in the right way. And if our listeners want to find you on social media, how can they engage with the movements you've been talking about? Well, you know, time's up now, you know, look for us. You can text now to 30644. Um, I'm just Tina Chen, T-I-N-A-T-C-H-E-N, you know, on, on, on Instagram. And, you know, we are going to be having her back, you know, all across, you know, not just the VP race, but this is nonpartisan. So we are looking, you know, 
gender discrimination actually knows no partisanship. <laughs> it comes That's right. In many ways. <laughs> and uh, we will be calling that out, you know, whether it's against the Speaker of the House, you know, whether it's again against congressional, you know, races. Um, we're urging listeners to use the hashtag and call it out when you see it, right? So that we want everybody to understand what they're hearing and seeing so they can make informed decisions about, you know, women, le women leadership, you know, this fall. Thank you so much for being on our show. I really appreciate it and look forward to having you back too. Okay. Thank you. Listeners, for this second half of our show, you are in for a real pleasure because it's my honor to welcome Representative Jan Schakowsky and also Representative Barbara Lee to join us. Their leadership has been pathbreaking and really puts into context why the campaign, hashtag we have her back, is so important and why women's leadership matters. So let's talk about the Helms Amendment. Representative Schakowsky, I want to begin with you. You introduced the Abortion is Healthcare Everywhere Act of 2020, the first ever legislation to repeal the Helms Amendment and expand abortion access globally with several co-sponsors, including Representative Barbara Lee, who's on with us today, and Nita Lowry and Representative Jackie Spear and Representative Ayanna Presley and, and others. Can you tell us about the Helms Amendment and your legislation? The Helms Amendment, which has actually been in place since 1973, was advanced by one of the most conservative, sexist, racist, um, homophobic members of the United States Senate, Jesse Helms, um, in order to make sure that any foreign money that goes to countries around the world cannot be used. Now, what it said in the, in the actual um, Helms Amendment was cannot be used for um, abortion as a means of birth control. But unfortunately, it's really been interpreted as meaning no abortions with any money that comes from the United States of America. So it is high time that we repeal this horrible, death-causing, life-threatening um, amendment that picks on, that particularly targets um, women of color, poor women around the globe. So you're absolutely right in that Senator Helms was a self-proclaimed bigot, homophobic, racist, absolutely sexist, and for and those and proud of it. <laughs> absolutely proud of it. You are so right. I, I want to turn to you, Representative Lee, on those notes. And I would like for you to talk to us about Senator Helms. He consistently fought against U.S. funding for HIV research, crudely arguing that homosexuality is, quote, deliberate, disgusting, revolting conduct. And he said that it's a disease that serves to punish gay people. Helms considered it, quote, common sense to limit funding to combat HIV and AIDS because he said the disease is transmitted by people deliberately engaging in unnatural acts. He also opposed a 1988 appropriations bill that would increase funding for AIDS programs, explaining, quote, we have to call a spade a spade. 
And a perverted human being is a perverted human being. I apologize to our listeners, but it really is important to put in context these people who were elected to the Senate and who wielded such powerful control on domestic matters and international. And, And just one last bit. Senator Helms's scorn was not reserved for gay men in opposition to the nomination of Roberta Actenberg, a nominee for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. He told the Washington Times and then repeated to the Washington Post, quote, she's not your garden variety lesbian. Rather, he said, quote, she's a damn lesbian. And I'm not going to put a lesbian in a position like that. So... Representative Lee, who was Senator Helms? Well, first of all, thank you so much for this conversation. Let me tell, uh, just just say to my sister, Congresswoman Shikoski, how happy I am and proud that she has introduced the Abortionist Healthcare Everywhere Act, or what it, uh, IPAS. And uh, it really is uh, an important uh, bill uh, with the 115 organizations uh, in the International Reproductive Health Coalition in space. This is long overdue. And it took Jan Schakowsky to take, take this to almost moving toward the finish line. So we've got a lot of work to do, but just by the mere fact that uh, she has introduced it with such strong support tells me that, that we're going to get there. So thank you, Jan, very much well, for this. Thank you, Barbara. You jumped Gosh. right on. So yeah, it, this, this is, is so important. And, and Jan, well, Jan laid out what the bill actually does. But let me just say a couple of things to add. To Please this. do, First because all, there's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. First of all, he uh, was a Republican from North Carolina. Uh, secondly, uh, you, you laid out how homophobic and uh, racist he, he was, and uh, he always um, was a sexist. Uh, uh, he, was, he was a misogynist. I mean, he, he was a, 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 a terrible, terrible um, person in terms of just uh, influencing domestic and foreign policy and how his influence played out in the lives of so many people. This was going back to 73, the Helms Amendment was passed in 1973. And uh, to think that um, this has not been taken on uh, to get this uh, repealed is, is just really shocking to me. He opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, can you believe that? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. This this is important for our listeners to understand the full scope of what it meant for a person like this to serve in the United States Senate. So I don't mean to interrupt. I'm going to let you get back to telling us exactly. But but you laid it all out. But this is just one specific bill uh, Mm -hmm. in addition to the Helms Amendment that Mm -hmm. that really uh, set forth who he was and his values and why anything that has his uh, fingerprints on it need to be repealed. <laughs> and well, this is one of them. <laughs> that, that's and, absolutely right. You know, and so we need to, Jan, we need to look at what else he did. In, in terms of- <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, do you remember, I don't know if you were with us, but in 1999, so we were freshmen um, at the time, because we're in the same, in the same class, 12 women from the House of Representatives walked over to the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee where Jesse Helms was, the, was chairing the committee to hand him a letter that was asking him to please 
it was time to sign the International uh, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW. Remember yes, that? Yes, I remember that. I remember that very well. So yeah. what did he do? He called the Capitol Police, Police yeah. to have us removed. Imagine. Yes. 12 women from the, the Senate. I mean, we went, we didn't go out quietly. I don't want to say, act like we did. We, we went out noisily. But I love nonetheless, it. <laughs> he yeah. had the gall and the audacity to say, oh, we're just going to remove you women uh, from the, the House of Ladies. He called us ladies. The yes. Ladies <laughs> from the I, United States Senate. I remember that very well. So if he had this attitude and took this action toward elected officials, uh, just think of what he thinks about women in developing world, in the developing world, and low-income women, and women of color. Uh, he really uh, did not even respect us, uh, who were his colleagues, uh, and so we know, and, and once again, as exhibited through this Helms Amendment in 73, that he doesn't respect women, uh, did not respect women anywhere in the world. And so we have got to, and some young women especially, uh, we've got to educate about this, because just like with the Hyatt Amendment, the Helms Amendment, there were so many of these, these men who did such harm to women through the policies, and so much of these, so many of these policies are still in place. Well, and and so funny. we, you know, so that's we've got to, yeah, so we've got to uh, really uh, follow Jan's lead and uh, go back and look at what else we need to do. But I also serve on the uh, Appropriations Committee, the subcommittee on foreign, on state and foreign governments, and state and foreign government, excuse me, that funds all of our uh, diplomatic and development initiatives. And uh, we constantly try to repeal the Helms Amendment by saying no funds can be used to implement it. And of course, we generally get it into the bill, uh, thank goodness, because we have a Democratic majority, but we never get it to the finish line uh, mm -hmm. as it relates to um, the total repeal, which is what Congresswoman Schakowsky is doing this year. Um, you know, we requested to put the Helms Amendment in the SFOPS bill. Got it in, but of course, you know what's going to happen. We also, just as a data out. point, put it into the Democratic Party platform. I was on the drafting committee. And oh, that's so we, terrific. Is this yeah. the first time that it's been put into the platform? No, we put it in uh, in 2016 also. I'm not sure, 12. I was on the drafting committee in 12, 16, and now. And so we put in both repeal of the Hyatt Amendment and repeal of Helms. And so this is the moment that we need to do this because our party is on record uh, supporting the repeal of these two terrible provisions. And so thank you, Jan, again. This is you're the right woman well, for the right time I, to get this done. I, I thank you both. And, you know, for our listeners to understand what we're talking about here. In 1973, the Supreme Court in a seven to two decision, seven to two, struck down laws criminalizing abortion in the United States. And it's that same year that Senator Helms seeks to impose these costs on women and girls who are living abroad. And I, I want our listeners to understand just what that world looked like pre-Roe because otherwise people really just don't understand in the post-Roe world 
just how horrific it was. And I'm wondering, wondering, Representative Schakowsky, if you could just touch on that just a bit. What was life like pre-Roe for women who needed to terminate a pregnancy? Chicago, where I'm from, is a place that actually got going a program called Jane, where women got together and in an underground way actually helped provide abortions um, for women who could not legally get one. So women have always tried to take control of their own bodies and do it in in a safe way. But the truth of the matter is that before Roe, women um, would have terrible complications, even death from illegal back alley abortions. One of the symbols of that time was a coat hanger that women might use themselves in order to uh, uh, end end uh, unplanned pregnancy. Um, So it, it was a horrible time. But let's remember that um, not long after the Helms Amendment came the Hyde Amendment. And this is really, really important. And Barbara Lee and I, um, Barbara, it's got to be maybe a decade ago now that a group of um, young women of color came to us and said, what's up with that Hyde Amendment? I think it's time for us to end it. It is uh, absolutely discriminatory. It really goes after mainly um, women of color, women who are low income, women who are on Medicaid, not being able to get one penny of federal dollars. Now understand that both Hyde and Helms, they they were willing to leave alone women of wealth in the United States of America, if they could afford to get an abortion, well, all right, although they were certainly against um, Roe v. Wade. But they wanted to pick on the most vulnerable women who wanted to be able to have some bodily autonomy. Domestically and abroad. And uh, uh, domestically and abroad. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, year after year, we, Barbara and I introduced the Each Woman Act that would repeal the, the Hyde Amendment. But Barbara, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, has also tried every session of Congress not to, to, to defund any money for the implementation of the Hyde Amendment. Well, Dr. Goodwin, can, yes. can I? Can I weigh in on this real quick? Uh, As somebody who, uh, and and I hate it, sometimes I hate talking about this, but I was at She the People a couple of years ago and talked about before Roe versus Wade and having to go to Mexico to have a back alley abortion myself. But, uh, and it was Mm. traumatic. I was a a pregnant teenager and Mm. uh, still in high school. And abortions, of course, for women who had money, they were uh, available, accessible. For women who didn't, and for black and brown women, of course, that was just no option. There was no option. And so uh, fortunately, uh, my mother had a friend uh, who knew a doctor in in Mexico. And I went there. And Fortunately, he was, it was at a good clinic. It was at an abortion clinic in Mexico, mind you. Now, this is Mexico, not the United States. And, uh, and I, I um, you know, had an abortion there. And, and I worried about all the girls then and the women who had to do what I did 
but couldn't get to a decent clinic <laughs> and who died as a result of that. And so when I worked for the great Ron Delms uh, as his chief of staff in the 70s, uh, he was a total feminist all the way. And when the Hyde Amendment came in 77, whenever it was, 76, 77, as a staffer, I was furious. And Ron, of course, didn't vote for him. And I said one day, and I had no idea how I would ever deal with this. Fast forward to here, I'm a member of Congress. And so when the All Above All Coalition, as Jan said, these phenomenal black and brown women came to us, we sat down, we mapped this out, introduced the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, uh, the Each Woman Act, and we have now about 181 co-sponsors on this. I but can you imagine that. from the 70s to 2020, that. the Helms Amendment and the Hyde Amendment are still on the books and still destroying women's lives. So I have chills by your story and the legacy that you bring to that, thinking about one day you would do something about that, and now you are a powerful member of Congress and doing something about it. And then also the deep sadness and pain that we're talking about, you know, nearly 50 years yeah. of this kind of continued oppression targeting black and brown women and not just here at home, but abroad. And we knew that even at home, you're right. So many women died. Leslie Reagan, who's author of When Abortion Was a Crime, Women, Medicine and Law in the United States, said that some, that some women barely survived the bleeding, the injuries and the burns and others did not. She actually examined Representative Schakowsky, Cook County Hospital records and data. Uh, and she said that there were wards, not just in Chicago, really around the country that were just dedicated to treating uh, abortion-related complications, and that annually there were tens of thousands of women in the United States who sought emergency care following illegal abortions, and as you say, the coat hangers, women who died in their bathrooms, uh, who died on their dining room tables, mm -hmm. who died in motel rooms. This is the real legacy of what was happening pre-Roe. This is what everybody knew. This is what the Supreme Court spoke to in Roe v. Wade, which is why Justice Blackman, who was a Republican appointee, he was a Nixon appointee, and he wrote the opinion in Roe. So this is what was known, and yet that Senator Helms would lead that legislation, knowing what that world would be like for women abroad, is really just horrific. Let, let me say that we have seen beyond abortion attacks on women's rights, including contraception. Now think about that. In, you know, well into the 21st century, we are seeing efforts mainly at the state level, but not only at the federal level as well, to <coughs> limit the rights of clinics like Planned Parenthood to provide the kind of um, contraception um, care. Title 10, which is the family planning um, uh, part of our laws, trying to limit those so that they cannot provide um, contraception. It's just, it's just incredible. We, I have seen hundreds and hundreds of laws passed at the state, at the state level trying to limit abortion. And we are seeing in some places that there may be one clinic left, two clinic lefts, left in a state that women can, can go to, making it harder and harder for women to access what they have the legal constitutional right to have, and that's an abortion, and certainly access to contraception, which was made free 
in the Affordable Care Act. I'm so happy that you mentioned that too, beyond abortion, what this represents, because with the rise of the Tea Party, what data shows is that between 2010 and 2013, there was more anti-abortion, anti-contraceptive legislation that was proposed and enacted than in the 30 years prior combined. So just in that three-year period, there was such aggressive efforts to strike down everything that had come before. And to your point about Title X, to just remind our listeners, Title X provides reproductive health care for the poorest of Americans. It was George H.W. Bush who shepherded it through Congress. It was Richard Nixon who signed it into law. And when Richard Nixon was asked about it, he said, this is just plain old common sense. This is good to do. And to your point, Representative Schakowsky, it's been gutted during the Trump administration. And what can possibly explain that? Yeah. Doc, Dr. Goodwin. Yes, you know, yes. You know, let, let me just, uh, what can explain it? These are people who don't value women. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, this far right wing uh, has an ideology that is an ideology that uh, dehumanizes women in many respects and every effort they can take on, they do. Uh, a couple of things to add to what Jan said. Also, uh, and we've been working on this now for comprehensive sex ed in schools right. uh, and teen pregnancy prevention programs, because that's how you prevent uh, abortions, right? For, with yeah. young people, yes. they do not even support teen pregnancy prevention. They're only abstinence only. They don't support comprehensive sex ed. So they don't support comprehensive sex ed. They don't support family planning. They don't support Title X. They cut funding for all women's health services. Uh, they don't support uh, access to all reproductive health choices, including re uh, abortions. They don't support anything that, that women uh, deserve uh, to make their own decisions about it, that our young people deserve in terms of understanding how to prevent unwanted and early pregnancies and what to do to protect themselves from uh, HIV and AIDS and sexually transmitted infections. So this is, you know, some of us saying, I still say it's a war on women. Well, and Barbara, those, those programs work, don't they? We've they seen a reduction. Work. Go ahead, say something about that, because we've seen a reduction in unplanned pregnancies. Yeah, no, they all work. They all work both here and abroad. Uh, when we looked, uh, and I don't know, Jan, we went to Uganda with mm -hmm. CARE, and uh, the big, we met with a family in a village in northern Uganda. They had five children, uh, and we asked them, and a, Repu a Republican was with us, what is it that you would like in terms of just helping lift yourselves out of poverty and taking care of your children? And they said, family planning services and contraceptives. And we don't, if we have any more kids, they had five children. They said, if we have any more, we want to have planned in a way that uh, we can take care of them. And both here in America too, wherever you, the numbers have gone down when you have teen pregnancy prevention, comprehensive sex ed for our young people in public schools. And the data is there that shows that. So mm -hmm. we're trying to get the we call it the Real Education About Life Act, uh, the Real Act passed in Congress. Please so that do. We can have the law. <laughs> Please do. Because the reality is, on, on that point, on that data point, which is really important, in the United States, it's red states where there are the highest rates of teen pregnancies, the highest rates of out of wedlock uh, births, 
the highest rates of STD and STI transmissions. And from a public health perspective, what's so chilling and horrific in this is that we this data is available. We know this data. If one goes to the CDC website, you can see the data. We know that the United States leads the developing world in terms of teens with sexually transmitted diseases. And we know these sexually transmitted diseases lead to cancers later and lead to deaths. And so it's stunning, as you say, Representative Lee, that there's been the gutting of sexual education in schools such that kids don't even know about their own body. And you see the rise in sexually transmitted uh, diseases all throughout the United States. That's really, it's, it's horrific. And in some instances for the poorest amongst those folks, it's a death sentence. Here's, I wanna make one optimistic point here. We now, for the first time, have a pro-choice House of Representatives. The majority of elected members of the House of Representatives are pro-choice, meaning, you know, things can change and they could change rapidly. Um, elections really matter. I don't want to get too political with you, but I'm just saying that we are able to pass bills in the House of Representatives to show the American people that it is possible for us to change these laws. It is possible to respect women and their bodily autonomy and to respect their right to, fam to plan their own families and control their own lives. Um, and by the way, it's not only physical damage, but the kind of economic damage when you can't, uh, you know, it can be a showstopper for young women to end up having a, a child as a teenager and not be able to go on with their, with, their, with their lives. And certainly around the world, Barbara and I have both seen at these family planning clinics, you often see moms lined up with lots of children and all they're asking is do not make me bring another child into poverty. Let me do it on my own time. Let my family figure this out. Don't tell me I can't have this opportunity to choose for myself. Um, and it's just so, it's so clearly wrong, but I'm telling you women are rising now. And I just think that these kinds of antiquated, outused, you know, they outlived any, well, they never had usefulness to get, it's time to get rid of them and we can. I believe that we will. Yeah, uh, Jan, thanks for uh, raising the issue around the pro-choice caucus, because the pro-choice Congress, because this is the largest pro-choice Congress that we've ever had. And let me tell you, looking at the glass half full, um, given, and I co-chair the, the uh, pro-choice caucus, and Jan mentioned earlier uh, the Hyde Amendment and, and the phenomenal young women, and we talked about repealing it. Well, it comes through the Appropriations Committee. It's always sort of a rider in the Appropriations Bill. And we've been fighting each and every year to make sure that is not in. Well, the good news is it won't be in there anymore. And uh, the speaker and our, all of the leadership uh, has said, okay, this is it. No more Hyde Amendment in the Labor HHS bill. And so that was a commitment this year. And it never would have happened had it not been for the outside push of young men and women, young women and men <laughs> around the country and having such a strong pro-choice caucus. And so Jan, next year, yes, we're gonna have to have a, our probe strategy on Helms also and make sure while, because see what Jan is doing in terms of the repeal, uh, that's a, a part of permanent law. 
And so her bill would actually repeal the law, but we can at least stop the funding, <laughs> assuming we do the work we're going to do between now and November and come at it. And uh, hopefully this is going to be done also within a very short period of time. 70, what was it? 73? I mean, Seven, oh, 73, 73. Yeah, well, so, so just know that there is there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's because of the organizing of these young people around the country who get it and who really said enough is enough. I want to emphasize that point that Barbara is making, and that is the inside-outside game. Barbara is uh, one of the co-chairs, along with Diana DeGette, of the Pro-Choice Caucus. But none of us could do this work if it weren't for the fierce organizing that is going on outside the Congress. The, uh, the, the, the women, and as Barbara said, the men too, who are mobilized right now to say, we aren't gonna take this anymore. And I think, we're, I think this has also become a part of the whole social justice movement, the um, fight back against racism, that we see. This is all part and parcel of the same fight. And I've never seen, I, it feels to me like a transformational moment in our, in our history. Um, and so we just, we couldn't do it without the um, mobilization on the outside. It just would not happen. That's right. Abortion access is a racial justice issue. On that note, it was in 1966 that Dr. King received an award from Planned Parenthood for his work. And he proudly accepted that award and wrote a brilliant speech, which his wife, Coretta Scott King, uh, delivered. And he said that there was a strong connection between civil rights and women's rights. And he said that it was cruel for any woman to be forced to bring a child into the world that was not wanted and where she could not afford to take care of that child. And he said that family planning was an urgent concern. It's a speech that everybody should, should, uh, should read. And I'm so happy that both of you have raised this important matter of racial justice as being central to this. Dr. Gutman, let me just yes. mention one thing. Please I'm do, so please you do. Brought this up because oftentimes there had been uh, not a split, but, but not the, the coalitions haven't been the women's, the feminist coalition uh, as it relates to the African-American community. Those coalitions haven't been as strong as they should be on reproductive justice and reproductive health. But let me just remind you of one other person the Honorable Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected to Congress, was one of the first board members of NARAL, way back Look in the that. early 70s when NARAL was founded, okay? And she too led on this issue early on. Uh, and so this history, I'm so glad you said this should be a, a study session. This history has to be brought out and put in context of where we are today uh, because we've got to address systemic racism and it's historical, there's a context for it. And so thank you very much. And thank you, Jan, I'm so glad you're doing it. What's the message of hope for the people who are listening? Well, let me just say, my message of hope is this. We just lost John Lewis, who made enormous changes. When he was fighting for um, racial justice and equality, he wasn't wearing the badge of a member of Congress. He was an ordinary young man who just had the courage the, the uh, amazing bravery to step out. The, there is access to fighting back and winning to every single person. 
And when we fight, we win. Now you've got allies throughout the United States Congress that are working side by side, sometimes following you to tell us how you want us to move forward. And we are working in partnerships. Yep, when we fight, we win. And what about you, yeah. Representative Lee? Silver lining. Silver lining is that Black Lives Matter. Yes. And now more people believe that. And the young people who are out there protesting in an intersectional manner have proven that. And so we've got to take the baton that John Lewis passed to us and run our lap of the race. I love that. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Representative Jan Schakowsky, Representative Barbara Lee, and Tina Chin. Thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this critical and insightful conversation. When women lead, change happens. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in. We hope you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is as we focus on the 100th year anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It will be an episode you will not want to miss. If you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America, being unbought and unbossed, and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to visit us at Apple Podcasts. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. Rate and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Let us know what you think about our show. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers are Maddie Ponce and Roxy Zoll. Our assistant producer for this show is Sarah Montgomery, joined by Giselle Hinkst and Rena Wakefield help with the development of our research. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance. Thank you.